0: Welcome to Callings, a podcast of NetView, the network for a vocation in undergraduate education, featuring conversations on college, career, and a life well-lived. I'm Erin Van Lanningham.
1: And I'm John Barton.
0: And we invite you to explore with us and our guests what vocation means both personally and collectively. We approach the subject with eagerness and humility, and seek a diversity of viewpoints. Through these conversations, we hope to offer listeners better ways to understand how discerning one's purpose in connection with others is central to a meaningful life.
1: We have the unique privilege today to welcome as our guest Dr. Rowan Williams, who is a Welsh Anglican bishop, a theologian, and a poet, and one of the most recognized Christian leaders of our era. After having spent many years in academics at Cambridge and Oxford universities, he was eventually elected as the Archbishop of Wales, and then a few years later became the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury, the senior leader of the Church of England and the ceremonial head of the Anglican Communion worldwide. He served in that position from 2002 to 2012, and in so doing, not only guided the Anglican Communion during turbulent times, but was on the front lines of diplomatic and reconciliation initiatives between different traditions and communities, and was in dialogue with popes and presidents and prime ministers and various other religious and political leaders across the world. After stepping down as archbishop in 2012, he continued to serve in the House of Lords in the Parliament of the United Kingdom and returned to the Academy as Chancellor of the University of South Wales and Master of Magdalene College, Cambridge, before retiring in 2020. Dr. Williams has a wealth of experience, speaks and teaches all over the world, has written dozens of books on many different topics, and cares deeply about faith and justice and unity and, about education and human formation. And all of this makes us immensely grateful that he's agreed to be our guest today. And so, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for your time and your presence, and welcome to Callings.
2: Thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome.
0: Well, we want to just start by reflecting on Uh, that you've done so many different things as a public personality and public theologian, as an author and scholar, a poet and a pastor, and we will talk about some of that in a few minutes. But first, given the focus of this podcast, we often like to start by asking our guests about their own sense of vocation, their own story of calling. So I'm wondering, Rowan, if you could talk about what were the origins of sources of your own sense of vocation, how did it unfold? What experiences or people or setbacks or moments of epiphany helped shape it?
2: The sense of calling goes back quite a long way. I think before I was 11 years old, I, I had a strong feeling that I had some sort of calling to to share the good news. Um, I was fortunate to be growing up in a very lively, very... Um, stretching and challenging and nourishing Christian environment with excellent preaching and pastoring. And I remember thinking as a very young boy, well, I would like to be able to to do that. And the same was true as I grew into my teens. I was immensely well-blessed with communities and pastors who encouraged that sense, as I've sometimes put it, that living with the Christian gospel was living in a larger world not a smaller one because i think for quite a lot of people in their teens there's a bit of a sense that religious faith is closing down the options i had quite the opposite feeling that it was always opening up horizons and perspectives for me and that had a lot to do with with the kind of parish priest that i had at that time so yes it goes back a long way it it has i think it has its roots very much in a longing to communicate And I had very, very good and life-giving examples of communication to help me.
1: Hmm, That's wonderful. Did certain people come to mind? Like, is there a
2: name or two, especially? Well, it it wouldn't be a name that meant a great deal to anybody except people in the parish. But um, Canon Eddie Hughes, my parish priest as a teenager, um, I'm always happy to honor his memory, because his example his teaching was just one of the things that kept me anchored as a teenager and that gave me an example of wisdom and humility, intellectual and imaginative courage, and spiritual faithfulness. So he, he made a huge impact in my formative years. And then, of course, beginning my theological studies, there were figures, some of the great figures of Cambridge in the late 1960s, like um, C.F.D. Mole, Charlie Mole, the New Testament scholar, who managed to weave together... Uh, an obvious, a very patent Christian faith with high-level scholarship, and would would move without embarrassment from prayer to exposition in his lectures.
1: I appreciate you sharing uh, those things. It also strikes me that we are asking you these questions as you are beginning uh, retirement. And so we're we're asking you in some ways, we're asking you about your sense of vocation and how it's changed over time. And we're doing so on behalf on this podcast, on behalf uh, especially of young adults who are looking ahead at their life. But now in your retirement, even though we're asking you to reflect back on a long and full career, many years of work and leadership, I, I also wonder, how do you think about vocation in retirement, like how, moving forward in your life, how do you think about this next chapter and how has that changed your sense of calling?
2: Perhaps it's brought into focus something I should have mentioned when talking about the beginnings of vocation, because, of course, it's not just an abstract sense, vocation. You you are called by the people around you. And I don't simply mean people around you are nudging you, saying, oh, go on, do that. But also the call that comes from for example, somebody else's need, somebody else's pain. And I guess that when I was a student, one of the most important things for me about vocation was my first real encounter with the issue of homelessness in the university city where I was living. And feeling that very, very strongly for years afterwards as a calling the people that I met on the streets were the people who called me into service of a certain kind. So that means that... Whether you're the archbishop, or whether you are, as I am now, a sort of um, honorary assistant priest in a little parish in suburban Cardiff, um, hmm. it's it's the people, it's the communities who say, "Well, rather like the the Greeks in John chapter twelve of the New Testament, we we would like to see Jesus." You know, that's that's the calling, and that continues to be, I think, where I see the real center of gravity of of my calling of any christian calling it's somebody saying to you not necessarily in, in words we want to see jesus and so that's what you have to step up to in some way which is terrifying
1: yeah
0: yeah
1: yeah, yeah so that got kind of a similar center of gravity but in different contexts and an context. evolving story yeah
2: yes it's a bit, it's a bit like the, the the way in which some people from a very different tradition, from the Buddhist tradition, will say, all the people you meet and all the experiences you have are potentially your teachers. You have to approach every moment with that openness of mind and heart that says, what is being given to me here? And then, of course, the Christian would want to underline the fact that you also hear, what is being asked of me here? And you live You live with those two things that were bouncing off the walls of your consciousness <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, that actually, that actually leads to a, a follow-up question that I have that maybe starts to get a little more specific. It, it, it has stood out to me through the years, just reading things that you've written and hearing you speak from time to time. It's it stood out to me that you seem to be able to integrate or find congruence between the public and institutional aspects of your life and work and A Life of Contemplation, uh, your commitment to the contemplative practice. And I, I wonder if you would mind uh, elaborating on that a bit for us. How do you understand those different aspects of life and work, or, or even what language do you use to describe them, and how have you been able to develop or maybe even struggle toward that integration?
2: it It certainly can be a struggle, and I wouldn't pretend for a moment that I've I've got the balance. But it seems to me that if what what you're being asked is we want to see Jesus, then you've really better make room for God in Christ in your own mind and heart. And that means getting used to being still and being silent so that your anxieties, your agenda, your fears, your vanities, your follies don't just overlay the reality that that wants to come through you as you might say the reality of God in Christ that longs to come through and to to spend time daily in silence in receptivity saying well, here I am I don't come to this time with bright ideas ambitions or whatever I come so that there may be some space for the divine to come and act and speak I think that's essential otherwise you're your actions and your words are going to come from a place of your own fears, your own, again, your own vanities, your own follies. And while there's going to be plenty of that anyway, it's quite a good idea to try and minimize it. (laughs) So I I see the contemplative side, the silent, receptive, attentive side, as, as one of the ways in which you try to bring another dimension of, well, honesty or truthfulness to what you say with varying degrees of success. But if you don't try, then I think you're somehow failing to to answer what's called for.
0: That added dimension, I want to pick up on that idea, the idea of making space this ritual of making space, mm-hmm. and I want to ask you a little bit about writing poetry and mm-hmm. writing about poetry. Mm-hmm. I know you have a new book out mm-hmm. in which you uh, meditate and respond to poems from the last century. I really enjoyed reading through that, just um, my own personal practice, but also as a professor of literature and. Mm-hmm. I I appreciated that you talked about poetry's added dimensionality Mm -hmm. in um, some of your uh, responses, and you also describe it as the place of longer questioning Mm. about life and the sacred, and that that's something that poetry gives us. Can you reflect about this added dimensionality and longer questioning?
2: It seems to me that when, when you write and when you read poetry, you're acknowledging that Language is is something which always pushes a bit beyond the obvious boundaries you've got used to. Language is always trying to say more than it can say. And when you've said something towards the resolution or illumination of a problem, you won't have solved the problem, but you'll have a few more resources to think about it and sit with it. So there's a kind of spiral, you might say. You're faced with the mystery of the human situation, the world situation. You're faced with the mystery of God, ultimately. You sit with it. You you feel for words and see what can be said. And to quote the great words of Samuel Beckett, you know, try, fail, fail better.
0: <laughs> yeah. you,
2: you now have the words you've just used and you think, ah, so, so that's what I think. That's what I might say. All right, let's build on that and see if, there's a new place that takes me to. So that's, that's the process. You're always moving out into a territory that, that's never going to be captured or mapped. And yet the words you use are the handholds as you move onwards, in shifting, enlarging the perspective you bring to what's ahead of you. Which is why I think the writing and the reading of poetry is always something to do with the sacred, whether or not people want to put the name on it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, this idea of enlarging perspectives or pushing boundaries, I think, really comes out in a lot of the poems that you selected mm-hmm. and in your meditations on them. I um, I wanted to just bring forward a couple of, of poems from the book and just ask you a little bit about it. Uh, there's a, a poem called The Pause by Ruth Bidgood. Mm. I, I don't know if I and um I had a great professor in graduate school, Milton professor, who used to talk about poetry being in the pauses. So, you know, that that's the place where poetry is pushing boundaries as you're you're suggesting. And but in your in your response to um Big Good's poem, The Pause, you suggest that God is in the po- pause. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if we could just talk a little bit about the pause and what that that means, you know, sort of poetically, but also what it might mean in our exploration mm. of the sacred?
2: Mm. That's a very interesting question. I, I think it's it's a little bit like saying, as again, some meditators would say, that the the moment, the almost imperceptible moment between breathing in and breathing out is, is somehow key. It's the pivotal moment where something is balanced, something is held, which the words... Themselves won't do, but somehow, either side of that stuff goes on. In the middle, stuff is just there, and I, th- I suppose that's that's the sense in which you'd say God is in the pauses, not that you ought not to speak, but just let let a long pause emerge. But you speak, you recognise the point you've got to, where you can't go further. You start again. But in that moment of transition, that's when the world turns.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Just to kind of go the completely other direction um, from the notion of the pause, sort of sitting in that in between. Space. You you pull out a, a poem by a poet Mia Anderson called "Prayer is Scrubbing," yes. and I thought to myself, "Well, I really need to read this." I've not. I've been, I was unfamiliar with the poem prior, mm-hmm. and I I love the poem, and I also love what what you say about it. But I mean, there are just some great lines in it um, about prayer works like a leaky bucket. Prayer is soil. Mm-hmm. Um, And there are these lovely aspects of the tactile and the mundane Mm. and the muddiness of life and the exploration of the darkness and light and that tension between darkness and light, which I suppose we could say is part of that pause. Mm. But I wondered if if you could talk about the practice of prayer in this way, prayer is scrubbing, what, you know, you'd like to unpack Mm. about that.
2: I'm very glad you picked on that poem. Maya Anderson is a, is a good friend of m- many, many years standing and a remarkable writer of huge energy and um, rather unconventional energy, I think. So that's, that's quite a special one for me. And what she's, what she's after there, I think, is that the discipline of letting go of our anxieties and our vanities and all the rest of it is very often a discipline of simply doing what's in front of you to be done without fuss, without postponement, without, um, without self-dramatising either. And I think Maya is, is pushing us into that moment. Well, what's to be done here? What's to be done? Um, if I can forget myself sufficiently in doing what's just got to be done, it's astonishing how that apparently narrow focus, rather like the neck of an hourglass, opens up into... To another dimension. So, thinking about our our prayer in general, I think is also thinking about how we conduct ourselves in this physical world. With what kind of immediacy and focus and unself-regarding concentration we can relate to the world around us.
1: Well, Rowan, this this discussion already kind of illustrates the multidisciplinary nature of your work and your interests. I wonder if I can ask about another aspect here. In your various leadership positions, you've been the proponent of dialogue, uh, a dialogical approach to unity and to reconciliation, to collaboration. And you've done that not only within your own faith communities in the Anglican communion, but also between wider traditions, such as between Eastern and Western traditions in Christianity, or between different religions and cultural and political divides, often in your work dealing with controversies or emotionally charged issues. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the notion of dialogue, your commitment Mm -hmm. to such dialogue, and how such commitments and practices emerged in your vocational development.
2: Hmm. Coincidentally, I was speaking just yesterday at the launch of a new Centre for Dialogue at Aberystwyth University in West Wales, mm. so it's very fresh in my mind. And it made a way into this to talk a little bit about what they were saying last night at the launch of this new centre. And the professor who was masterminding this said, I'm actually not quite sure what the centre is going to be doing, because the whole point of it is to invite people to to let me know where they would most value a space that is patient and attentive and secure enough for them really to, to risk the adventure of dialogue. And I think that's that's a really important thing. It, it's also quite interesting that that's a university with a very strong bilingual tradition. and. A couple of people were saying last night the fact that the university has operated for over a century in both Welsh and English somehow means that there's a a dialogical dimension to to the institution itself but to be more specific about that, I think what what we were saying what I would say about dialogue generally is it's a process in which you you resolve to listen so that your perspective is enlarged. It's the same thing as with poetry, really. You have a hunger, you might say, to move into a larger, a more generous, a more well-resourced world. And the presence of that other person in a dialogue situation is the gift that opens a door into that. Now, that's not going to be how it feels very often, because you may be dialoguing about something where you are... Managing real fundamental disagreements. And so, two things then become necessary, I think. One is the imaginative effort of trying to guess how it is that somebody else who cares about at least some of the things that you do and has at least some of the same resources at their disposal that you have will still come to a different conclusion. But don't lose sight of the fact that they will care about at least some of the things you care about as as we were saying last night at this um, event in Aberystwyth there are very very few human beings who will say i really don't want to leave leave anything to my children i really don't care about um whether i'm thought of as honest i really don't give a damn about whether um the person the homeless person on the end of the street freezes to death very few people actually say that sort of thing or feel that sort of thing all right mm. let's assume that there is care and see if we can at least dig down towards that. Second thing, then, about dialogue is that there are moments when the process of talking to one another has made it a little bit more possible to do something together, and in the doing of it, the common care comes to the surface once again. So to give you an example from um, my time as Archbishop, as you know, we had some pretty... um, pretty bloodstained controversies, over, especially over sexuality questions in my time as Archbishop, and it was very hard indeed to deal with those in anything resembling a satisfactory way. But at the, the big conference in 2008 of the world's Anglican bishops, the Lambeth Conference, one thing that came from a number of quarters was bishops saying, we'd really like to be connected in relation to the work we're doing, say, with aid and relief and development? Can we share experience around this across the global Anglican family? And out of that came a quite new global network, the Anglican Alliance, which was set up precisely to share resources and skills, perspectives, good practice um, between Britain, Kenya, Japan, Korea, Brazil, and so forth, and it's, I think, quite a good example of digging to the level at where you can recognize the same sort of care. Because these, these were Anglican communities with very, very different cultures and agendas. But all of them wanted to share experience and to learn about how you might more effectively, well, more effectively respond to the second great commandment of loving the neighbor. So yeah. that was one of the, the to, to me, quite surprising and grace-filled things that came out of what was otherwise a somewhat tense set of encounters. Yeah.
1: And in your, in your own development, and you talked about uh, even when you were a young, young boy, um, being impacted by your faith community, by uh, by the leaders of your faith community, mm-hmm. being, being drawn toward wanting to understand and communicate Jesus well. When were you opened up, I guess mm-hmm. I could say, to mm-hmm. communities and to issues uh, that were wider that maybe you couldn't have even imagined as a young boy? And how did that develop, happen? Mm-hmm.
2: Probably the first real opening up was when, as a, Teenager, late late teens, I suppose. I read a bit more deeply in Jewish literature and material, and began to understand a bit more seriously what um, what Jewish history was about. Not simply in relation to the Holocaust, but of course that was inevitably a big part of it. It had a little bit to do with um, having a couple of Jewish friends at school. It had a bit to do with reading some Jewish novels. or novels about Judaism, novels like Patrick White's Riders in the Chariot, which has a an astonishing evocation of Jewish communities in Germany in the nineteen thirties. So, as I then began to learn Hebrew as a theological student, I I kept up some of that interest in in the Jewish world, and it's still actually a a very significant area of my concern: Christian-Jewish dialogue. I don't think I really began to reflect. Very much about Islam until rather later, because I grew up before the the, level, the current level of Islamic presence in our society was was so visible. And I would say it's probably not until my thirties and forties that I really began to engage with that. And probably um, after I became Archbishop of Wales, when there was a, a real need to work at interfaith relations locally here in in the communities of Wales. And I don't think I'd ever really expected that um, when I became Archbishop of Canterbury, dialogue with Islam would be quite such a major part of almost my routine. But that became Mm -hmm. a very enriching, very regular aspect. Mm -hmm. And then I guess that a visit to India um, just after my wife and I were married brought me up against yet another world, um, the Hindu and the Buddhist traditions, which, particularly Buddhism, has continued to be a source of real inspiration and challenge and and help to me. I I should say perhaps that my wife grew up in India, so um, one of the first big trips we made together was back to her her birthplace in India. And um, there was a kind of, I don't know, a family connection, a family affinity with that part of the world too. So it developed slowly, but in all these settings, I guess what I was really conscious of was the way in which, to go back to an image I used earlier, there were gifts being offered yeah not not arguments to be had first and foremost, but gifts being offered, and one of the gifts to use an image i I often like to use one of the gifts is the sight of another person turned towards their God. Mm-hmm. And when you see someone else's face turned towards what they most love and and value in the divine, that really teaches something
1: yeah and and one more area of that that I think is interesting based on what you just said I mean, you're talking about the development and your own growth toward interreligious mm. uh awareness and mm. dialogue. I also know your deep commitment and your long history to intra religious dialogue and commitment mm. and and I want to ask this both in terms of uh, um, some of your work between Eastern and Western traditions of Christianity, mm-hmm. but all but also to frame it in terms of how do you understand that part of your work uh, in terms of even concerns in the world today or the impact of dialogue, maybe, or mm-hmm. even the disappointments mm-hmm. that are happening. And so, let, let me ask it like this: You've had a long commitment to dialogue between. Eastern and Western traditions mm-hmm. in Christianity, how do you process the hope for ecumenical unity, um, uh, which I know you're, you've been committed to for a long time, especially now as the world is changing? I mean, the war between Russia and Ukraine mm-hmm. is, a, is a concern for so many right now and, it, and the divisions that it has mm-hmm. brought, you know, even within the Orthodox Church itself. How, how do you process that in terms of the impact of dialogue? the things that you've worked so long for, maybe mm. in terms of disappointment or concern or hope? Mm. How, do, how do you process all of that?
2: With difficulty, of course, because you you use the word disappointment, and certainly that, that is part of it. Um, I had hoped, I suppose like many people, when the Soviet Union collapsed, I'd hoped to see a new Russia emerging that had learned some lessons, that had shaken off some of the habits of a kind of servile politics and a collectivist politics, only to see Russia, it seems, running back into tribalism and a sort of religious superiority and an enclosure of imagination. And that—that that is really heartbreaking because for someone like myself who has learned so much from the Russian tradition in its literary and its religious forms, it's, it's terrible to see it being so distorted, caricatured, you might say, by the, the violent, aggressive rhetoric that's, that's now emanating from parts of the Russian Orthodox Church. But there are plenty of Russians who see that as well, and that's, you know, that's a kind of consolation to me. So, yes, there is disappointment in that some of the hopes which were around when I was a young man for um, you know, Christian reconciliation within the next generation. Well, they certainly haven't been realized. And yet, when I think of how, how deeply and how constructively Christians at grassroots level work together now in ways which would have been unthinkable 50, 60, 70 years ago, I think, well, actually, it hasn't just been one story to be told here, not just a story of disillusion and drifting apart, but stories certainly of some kinds of institutional consolidation that have been pretty bad for unity, and some kinds of human rapprochement that have been very good for unity. And if it's true that history doesn't just go in a straight line, then, well, we would expect something of that order. So disappointment, but not disillusion, and some thanksgiving for the ways in which, amazingly, people find themselves, find one another in in these relationships across confessional and religious boundaries. Not, not just a, a dark picture.
0: So follow up on that, just to be thinking about the Thanksgiving for those moments of connection or collaboration, or as you said earlier, the, you know, for those who are risking the adventure of dialogue, mm. I'm wondering if you can think about uh, more broadly uh, your work as a facilitator of that dialogue. And I want to probe how you understand the language of common good or common ground. Um, You've given us a couple of ideas here. You've suggested, you know, assuming there is care or the idea of, you know, look at the gifts that are being offered Mm-hmm. Um, those might be places to start, but yeah. perhaps you have other things to think about um, in terms of the common ground um, that we could mm. understand.
2: I think in this context, we're we're always sort of poised between the what what's a little bit like um, sticking a, a crampon a bit higher up the rock face. You know, you reach up, you you bang in the next handhold. You say, I trust there'll be something I, I can pull myself up on there. So I think, yes, um, I'm going to, to assume that there's enough common ground to get us through the next, the next phase of a conversation. And when I've pulled myself up with that, then I may find there's a little bit more view to look at, a little bit more of the horizon to see, which gives me some confidence to keep trying that. So a sort of to and fro of imagine, both imagining and creating the common ground you, as I said earlier, you you dig for the common moments of care, but you also build the relationship which allows you to keep talking. You create a common good for this conversation. You assume that you and the other person talking have a common interest in keeping this conversation going because there's something something in it for both of you which is which is gift, which is life giving, and you build that, you work at it, you you watch for where it flags or where it sags and you try to make up for that and, and so on. And I, I think that's why when we talk about the common good in a society, we're not simply talking about some um common denominator that we can identify. Ah oh, that you know that's what's good for everybody, um, which is not usually a very sensible a subject to work on. But it's looking at those almost uncountable stories of people discovering they can work together because of a a common care that they're discovering here and here and here and here. And back to the experience with interfaith dialogue when I was archbishop, we set in motion during my time a national program um, which was called Near Neighbours. And it was an attempt to create local interfaith networks whose focus was primarily on shared challenges in a community. So let's say, think of one one example that I saw a bit of at first hand, an East London borough where there were very um, substantial communities of Hindus, Muslims, Jews and Christians all, all bundled up together in a rather economically challenged area. And all of them faced problems to do with the care of the elderly. All of them faced problems about road safety for their children. All of them faced issues around involvement with the governance of the local schools. All of them faced broader environmental questions. So you know, what, what are we going to do with that? Well, we're going to try and see what kinds of collaboration will, will work for everybody on the assumption that, no answer to any of these questions could come from any one community alone and any answer to any of the questions would affect all of them so work with that and i think that's how common good gets a bit of flesh and blood on it
1: In all of this, we're exploring different aspects, not only of your thought, but your work, the roles you've played in public and global leadership in some turbulent times. And, and I, I like the language you're using of the, the, the gift of common care, the gift of common concern, if I'm, if hmm. I'm uh, wording that right, in the way that it emerges, yep. especially in grassroots interactions. There is also a sense in which we live in especially turbulent times. Mm -hmm. Um, I I mean, I know every era in history is turbulent, but it it seems that we are living in an age of some heightened (laughs) challenges. And uh, you mentioned some of these, but, you know, I think of unprecedented levels of migration happening across Mm -hmm. the world, um, environmental crises that we're facing, so many of the social transitions and political upheavals happening across the planet right now. And I know you would have so many things to share on all of those topics, but but I I wonder how uh, you would reflect on or describe this particular moment in our in our in human history, um, the mm. challenges, what seem to be unprecedented challenges, right. and how you uh, kind of frame that or process process that in mm. terms of your vocational perspective, mm. the work that you do, the work that we all do, the work that you've done. What what meaningful service mm. means and so forth.
2: Mm. It's a huge question, really, because trying to to crystallize where where the world is at the moment is not not the easiest of um of challenges. But it seems to me that a couple of things that, that are distinctive about where we are at the moment are these. One is we've become in the last few years especially. Uncomfortably more conscious of the fact that, as it's sometimes been said, crises don't read maps. The great crises of our times are not local; they're not national, yeah. and they don't respect national boundaries. Whether it's the um, the tragedies of mass migration caused by all sorts of things like endemic violence or indeed um, environmental degradation, whether it's the environmental crisis, whether it's the pandemic. There is an unprecedented realisation now that there are no merely local solutions to these. And so we have to struggle to find the, both the imaginative resources and the practical resources to respond to this. It's not enough just to, just to say, well, my, my nation's interest comes first. Because you know what? At the end of the day, the pandemic will have no interest at all in your nation's interest. Yeah. And climate crisis doesn't, isn't selective about where it presents itself. So how, without simply going naively for a, a kind of world government pattern, how do we cast a slightly critical eye on our national aspirations and security and sovereignty so as to make sure that my safety and my neighbor's safety walk hand in hand that's one of the things. Second thing, which I think is uncomfortably on our horizon at the moment, is the worldwide, I think you can call it, crisis of what we really mean by democracy. Hmm. How, how do healthy societies work? And how do they work? And this is a controversial point. How do they work in an increasingly secular environment where people are a bit vague about what it is they're responsible to at the end of the day? How do you push back against the endemic creep of corruption and verbal and actual violence within what have been democratic environments? And right across the Western world, we've seen something of that erosion of standards, an erosion of a sense of accountability, an erosion of a sense of honesty and transparency in public life. And we have a lot of work to do there. And that, I think, is where communities of faith and individuals of faith can come in and say, well, you may not accept our metaphysics and you may not practice our devotions, but you better sort out what it is you think you worship. What do you think is ultimately valuable? Yeah. Because it won't do just to stagger on from one bit of acquisition to another without, without any questions. Hmm whom you ignorantly worship, I declare to you, says Paul to the Athenians. Yeah, yeah. And as somebody else said, if you don't worship God, you'll end up worshiping all kinds of things, worst of all yourself.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah that really puts a, a different lens on the whole notion of what it means to be a neighbor. <laughs> when you start to think about, you know, who to whom are you responsible, you know, what are you worshiping? And mm. it's not just the notion of the near neighbor, right? But mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the notion of understanding the neighbor that you cannot see, but that you still are, you know, sort of in with. solidarity walking with. Yeah,
2: and, and also to pick up a point I've sometimes um, discussed in relation to the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Gospels. The Samaritan is the person who brings life. To the wounded man, the neighbor is the one who gives life. So not just the object of my charity, but also the source of my well-being. So think think about that. Think about the global neighbor as the one who can bring you life. And Mm. that changes your attitude a bit.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, as we approach the end of this conversation, um, I'd like to bring this back. To a central focus of this podcast, which is education and um, our, our work as educators, you have been a teacher and a professor for years, and you care about teaching and students. So given our audience here, which is largely undergraduate students and educators, what closing advice would you offer young adults today, college students And university students today who are in the early stages of discerning their own vocations in a world that is continually shifting under their feet?
2: First of all, I'd say think hard, give yourself time to think hard about where you're you're finding life. Not just immediate gratification or satisfaction, but but life, a sense of being at home in the world, and a sense also of the horizons that enlarge that home. Keep alert for that. Write it down. Make a note of it. This was a moment. This was an encounter. This was a a bit of learning where I realised a little bit more about how I might be at home in the world. And and I had that strange double experience of being utterly surprised and utterly reconciled. I never thought it could be like this, and this is exactly how I hoped it would be. You know there's moments of of joy, which is something very different from gratification. I'd say, "Look, look for that. I don't think you can talk about education at all without talking about joy, and I get very, very annoyed when I read people writing about or talking about education who don't remember that it is it is joy. Mm. it's because the learning of truth is joy, the learning of truth is our fulfillment. so that's one thing I'd say give give time for noting and thinking and fingering over those experiences. I think second, keep an eye open for the ways in which your reactions are becoming a bit fixed and a bit lazy. Here's a very challenging new thing, a new encounter, a new environment. Am I going into it with my defences up or am I going into it with a willingness to be enlarged? doesn't mean I have to agree with what's coming at me or say, oh, it's all fine, or just shrug my shoulders. But here is something with which, in engaging with which I, I will become more myself, more deeply and fully who I'm meant to be and will receive more things that I can then give and share. So in both those areas, it's, it's about self-awareness, not self-consciousness, not self-obsession but just keeping an eye open for where the life is, keeping an eye open for what the things in me are that pull back against that life or that learning.
1: Well, Rowan, once again, we are so grateful for your generosity today for giving us your time and for sharing so much insight and wisdom with us. Thank you for joining us.
2: Well, thank you. Thank
1: you. And to our listeners, Thank you for joining us as well on Callings, and as always, we wish you the best on your own journeys and your own pursuits of a life well lived. Until next time.
0: What a rich and life giving conversation we had with Dr. Rowan Williams.
1: Remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, Remarkable remarkable. man and discussion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, really starts us off with a definition of vocation about how we are called by the people around us. And Mm. I was, you know, that kind of stuck with me throughout the whole conversation. And when I was talking with him about poetry and his idea that, Language pushes boundaries and enlarges perspectives. And, you know, the idea of the importance of enlarging perspective um, through language was uh, resonant with me.
1: It stood out to me the way he linked that to the notion of dialogue. I mean, when we we were talking about dialogue, his commitment to dialogue, um, the dialogue, I mean, the way that he described it, dialogue starts with a commitment to, or the way he said it, a resolve to listen. Yeah. Uh, e- even a hunger for listening. And that what dialogue is, is it, it's a gift that opens that space up so that we can listen and then our perspectives can be enlarged. And I thought that was a powerful way of defining and describing what dialogue is all about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The um, idea of, you know, paying attention and uh, you know, having some significance in our listening. I think everyone, uh Take something away from that. I, yeah, I, at the end, um, when he made the comment that education is joy mm, and that you yeah. know, there, there's, you know, it's about joy, I did not realize how much I needed to hear that. And I think that, you know, many people, uh, probably um, would respond in, you know, sort of saying, yes, absolutely. Um, found myself even getting a little emotional when he kept just saying it's, it's about joy. It's the, it's about joy.
1: It also, you know, stood out to me how much his emphasis on formation and on vocation carries with it I guess you would say global responsibilities. Um, uh, I mean, mean, when we think about vocation today and and when, when, uh, when our students, uh, when our young people are are trying to think about their own vocational journey and development and and thoughts um, that we live in a, in an era where that has to be understood and framed in kind of global terms. Yes. At one point he said uh um we were talking about the, the the different challenges of this current moment in history and he said crises don't read maps. Right. <laughs> and uh, that that stood out to me that 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 uh things like pandemics and the the climate crisis and other things don't they don't they don't adhere to borders. Um uh, and and so whatever it means to be people of vocation in today's world um today's world is one of a lot of overlapping and shared challenges as well as shared opportunities and 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 learning how to think globally like that and and one way that he described it as well is learning or always thinking in terms of who we are responsible for or what we are mm-hmm. responsible to and that that yeah. stood out to me.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think the notion of being responsible to neighbor, um, you know, gets us back to the idea of that we're called by the people around us, but that is both, as he said at the end, home, and then also looking towards the horizon, who or what is calling you on that horizon. And I'm going to, I'm going to think through that, uh, in the coming days.
1: Callings is hosted by NetView, the network for vocation and undergraduate education, an association of nearly 300 colleges and universities in the U.S. and Canada. NetView is administered by the Council of Independent Colleges and is funded through member dues and generous support from Lilly Endowment Incorporated. Your hosts were John Barton and Aaron Van Laningham. The editor and assistant producer for the episode was Marion Edwards, and our music was composed by Dan Kennedy. You can find our library of podcasts at netview.buzzsprout.com. Additional resources can be found at Netview's blog, vocationmatters.org, and at the Netview program page at the Council of Independent Colleges website, www.cic.edu. Thank you for listening. Listeners to this episode may also be interested in Season 1, Episode 4, Charisma and Craft, A Conversation with Ibu Patel, and Season 2, Episode 2, Neighbor Love, A Conversation with Jason Mann.